It's actually a very sweet time just to sit quietly, isn't it? It really kind of feels like we're doing the same thing as the trees. We just sit here and let our roots go down and touch the roots of the trees. So we'll sit for about uh, 40 minutes, and um, then we'll be together in other ways. And the theme that we explored last time of going into the dark. Two weeks from now, um, Sylvia, Sylvia will be here next time. I'll be here two weeks from now, and I want, I want then to look at the theme that we uh, talked about some last time, the theme of... Um, How do we bring our spiritual practice to particularly the people that we find to be enemies or those with whom we have friction or conflict, difficult people, enemies, and how do we uh, bring more consciousness to that part of ourselves, whether people we're in close personal contact with or people who happen to be um, in places of political power? That we, that we feel uh, friction with and even repulsion or, <laughs> or, or, or other qualities. My mother, my mother turns off the television set every time certain people come on the set. <laughs> you, may, you may do that too. I'm not naming names because I think there's certainly plenty of room for enemies all around the political spectrum. <laughs> so, so I'll do that. I'll explore that in two weeks. And I'm wondering how many people were here last time? Okay, and how many people did the, worked some with the practice of going into the dark in the last week? Okay, that's great. Because what I'd like to do is, to, since we're starting a little bit later for the talk, I, I want to talk a little more briefly than I would usually talk and leave a fair amount of time, like hopefully at least um, almost half the time left, if I can. I'd like to leave that for our own exploration of of our own practice, what it means to go into the dark. So what I'd like to do today is to review somewhat some of the the themes that I uh, brought up last time, do that briefly, and then talk about the qualities which uh, are really necessary to go into the dark in those different, in those different senses. So, you know, I first, uh, last time I talked about going into the dark or going into darkness in um, five different senses or five different ways that we could look at darkness. I talked about darkness as absence of light. And I talked about darkness as ignorance, darkness as uh, fertility even creativity, darkness as difficulty, and then darkness as the unknown and the mysterious. So I want to talk, review those a little bit. Um, so it's this, it's this wonderful time, and the day really feels like it brings out that sense of uh, the dark time, the, the time of rain, the time when it feels almost feels like we are being like the natural world when we slow down and when we um, go inward. And I mean, I, one of the things I love doing uh, retreats here in the winter, because up on, up on the hill a little bit, it feels like this is the entire world somehow, that the, that the, 
the rain and the clouds. It's almost one can't really see anything else. And there's a way in which this time can bring out that quality. And as I mentioned last time, as is pretty obvious, the culture at the time that nature is slowing down, the culture is speeding up. And it takes some consciousness and uh, even deliberate uh, intention to have this time be a time of slowing down so that we can be uh, more like the natural world. And I, I love also that it's, uh, I think it really helps to be present with the natural world, to observe the natural world, to see what the, the trees and the, the bushes and the plants are, and the animals are doing right now to really be in touch with that. It's an, I think it's an invitation to, to be with the dark in that way. And I think from being closer <clears throat> to the natural world in that way, some of these other qualities of darkness come in. So I talked also about ignorance, about the way that we can be uh, invited to ask, uh, where am I ignorant? And that there's this, that marvelous quality of human beings that we can actually know that we don't know. We can intuit where we are blind. It's, it's uh, quite something. You know, that, it, what that means is that we're dynamic, that there's movement, that, we, that we're never really stuck because we can always know that we're stuck. And when we know we're stuck, we're not stuck in the same way if we didn't know we were stuck, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so isn't, isn't that marvelous? That we can actually, to know you're stuck means you're not stuck in the same way that you used to be stuck. And, and that, that's wonderful. And that's this quality of exploring our own sense of ignorance. Where am I growing? Where is my edge? Where is my, my learning? Where am I feeling kind of stuck but not entirely stuck, to, to use that metaphor? The third quality is a quality of uh, fertility. It's like almost like the darkness as... Uh, womb-like, or the earth as bringing forth out of the darkness and out of the stillness something new. This quality of um, the um, power of the darkness, of the night, and just in the same way that dreams come forth in the night. So we can go into a time of darkness, and it can be a time of uh, some of these other senses of darkness. It can be a time of difficulty or the unknown or things slowing down can be a tremendous time of creativity and fertility. And it's, uh, that's hard for us, I think, because sometimes the darkness is scary and we're not really so aware of the possibility of the creativity. But it's, it's, again, it's, it's in a way uh, trusting. It's, it expresses a certain faith that something, something will come out of the, the uh, slowing down. You know, and I... Um, I think we all know that there, there are times when we just feel, whether it's the time of a given year or the time, a particular period in our own lives, when we, when we go into the slowing down the darkness so that something can come forth, so that something can um, be present. And I'll talk about some of the qualities that, that help that. Then the, the fourth quality was the quality of the darkness as difficulty. And again, this is a place where our practice is maybe most obviously helpful when compared with maybe how we approach difficulty before practice or before spiritual practice of some kind is that with um, 
a different intention, we can look at difficulties as workable. Rather than taking difficulties as curses, we can do as the Tibetan teaching of the Lam Rin or, um, teaches, or the, actually it's the Lojong practices teach, we can, we can say, let me transform all obstacles into the path of practice to reframe any difficulty so that we more and more a difficulty occurs, whether it's a personal difficulty or a um, family, group, or organizational difficulty or a social difficulty. Oh, something more to learn. Oh, Uh, Difficult social-political circumstances. What new creativity will come out of this? Or what can we learn out of this difficult time? What can I learn out of this injury or this uh, even even this illness? What's possible to learn? Rather than just taking it as negative, woe is me, woe is us, you know, woe is the culture, and so forth. And that's that's challenging, but but it's the invitation when difficulty arises to have that be a kind of wake-up call, time for practice, time to see it in a different way, time to explore the difficulty and, and learn to transform it. Maybe we can talk more if that's the particular sense of darkness. We can talk more about the um, specifics of that. And then the last, the last sense was the sense of the, um, the unknown, the quality of sort of, it's again related to all these others, the, the sense in which we go into the darkness and we don't know what's happening and we can again take that as part of our practice that we learn doing the meditation practice and, and when we bring it into daily life we learn to um, we learn to dance with the unknown. I mean, it's an image that just came to me right this moment. I hadn't thought of it, but think of it. You know, that's what we're doing, isn't it? The, the unknown comes as our dance partner and we learn to dance with the unknown. And, and it may be one of the most wonderful dance partners possible, isn't it? We dance with the mystery. And can we, can we, um, can we see uh, our being with the unknown in that way? And again, we, in our meditation practice, in a way we get a training because we're invited to be with the unknown every moment. We're invited to be with the mysterious. We're invited to uh, be in a different way. So this week I was reflecting on several qualities, which are really qualities that unify the different ways that we can be with the darkness. And I was, I was uh, thinking of several qualities such as letting go of the known. Another quality is openness. Another quality is courage. Another quality is equanimity, and another quality is faith. All of these are qualities that help us to be with the darkness, to help us to open to the darkness, to be with it. And I wanted just to mention, mention these qualities and talk some about their, their, their nature. That the first is really uh, letting go of the known. Letting that this is this is a very crucial aspect of opening to the darkness in several of the senses, whether it's uh, difficulty or the sense of creativity and, fer- and fertility or the sense of um, the mysterious. That in some ways we bring 
our, our, all our old expectations, habits, and ways of knowing into the darkness. And in a way, the darkness invites us to let go of some of those concepts, to let go of some of uh, our um, ways of understanding. It may be to let go of structures. I talked last time about how five years ago, I felt that I had to go deeper into my own uh, passions and what was, what was most fully motivating me. And so for about a year, I dropped a great deal of the structure of my life. And maybe some of you have done this, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes it's not so voluntary. And I, in a way, I was letting go of the known. I was letting, I, I was, I had been a journal editor of a, co-editor of a journal called Revision for 10 years, I dropped it. I had been on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, gone. <laughs> I had been teaching regularly at a school, stopped that. Uh, I stopped most everything I was doing to let something new come. And it was, it was um, not always easy, you know, because it was a dropping of structure. In a way, it was dropping of the known, but it was creating the space for something new to happen. That, I think, is really important. There are ways in which the, the known is particularly a problem when it fills up all the space. It's like our knowing fills up all the space, and we can see that very concretely when we meditate, right? Our ways of knowing just fill it up. I, there, was, there, was like a, there was a cartoon, I remember, once uh, that had something like, it was a parody of Descartes' I Think, Therefore I Am, and it showed this person in the first frame just sitting quietly with the, the bubble pretty empty. And then it started saying, I think. Therefore, that was in the second frame. The third frame, the thoughts started to proliferate. The fourth frame, the thoughts filled up the in- not only the bubble, but the entire cartoon frame. It was just everywhere. And there's a sense in which... Uh, is that familiar? <laughs> is that familiar? So partly... Partly what we learn in our practice is we learn to let go of the known, maybe, maybe to be more discriminating. You know, I, I, find, I find myself um, in reflecting on the progress of practice, saying, you know, I think about 20% as much as I did 20 years ago. Much less. But I think it's higher quality. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and so there's a sense in which it's not like we totally jettison all our thinking, but we have, in some ways we have to learn to let go. And one of the things about meditation and retreats that are beautiful is we can really, really let go. And then we can be discriminating in what we allow back in. Because I, th- I think you know this, when we let go of the known and let go of the thinking, it's kind of waiting at the door, <laughs> When we, when you know, when we, if we, or if you imagine as we sit in a meditation room and the, we, we, um, when we go back outside, all the stuff is waiting for us, all of the habits, and we can be a little more discriminating. So there's a sense of this uh, letting go. That's uh, letting go of the known. That's really crucial. I wanted to read something from um, Stephen Batchelor said it really nicely about the quality of meditation in relation to this letting go of the known. He said. There's a kind of unknowing present in meditative questioning which is quite different from the unknowing found in the sense of of, uh, ignorance. In ignorance, things appear in a way in which they do not exist. 
That is, there is some kind of delusion. There is also a clinging and grasping involved which solidifies this distortion and sets it up as something real and secure. Meditative unknowing is free from such grasping and distortion. Instead of clinging, it lets go. Instead of insisting that things exist in a certain way, it accepts their mysteriousness. Such unknowing loosens our hold on the immutability of the familiar. It is simple and relaxed. It retains a naive, childlike openness. That's from the book called The Faith to Doubt. And and the second quality I wanted to mention is the quality of openness, that being with the dark, being with the unknown particularly, being with the mysterious, being with the creative about to happen demands a lot of openness, demands a lot of quality of uh, being able to be receptive, being able to, to listen. You know, in my own uh, work sometimes, uh, working with others, sometimes it seems like the entire work of human relationships rests on the foundation of listening, rests on the foundation of careful listening. When I talk to people who work as mediators or as peacemakers, the heart of their work is listening. And when we read about certain breakthroughs in international relationships, you know, such as between long-time uh, people in conflict. Often they happen because people can listen to each other and be open to something new. You know, one of the stories which I love, I did, I did training about a year ago with a man named Johan Galtung, who is Norwegian and who was the, really the founder of Peace Studies about 40 years ago. He has been doing international conflict mediation work for about 40 years. And he, the, the heart of his work is a kind of listening and dialogue where he simply listens to either side and acts as a kind of mediator. It's very much like Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the role of the peacemaker is to listen to the suffering of each side and bring the suffering of one side to the other, back and forth. And Galtung told this one story of one of his, uh, I would say one of his wonderful breakthroughs in, uh, it was between the countries of um, Peru and, uh, I believe, um, Ecuador. Since 1941, they had fought four wars. Between 1941 and 1995, they had fought four wars between a piece of land on their border that was in the Andes. Almost no one lived there, and there actually were no great mineral deposits there. Nonetheless, they had fought four wars and a lot of people had lost their lives. Someone invited him, someone from one of the countries invited him down to mediate because there was, in around 19, in the late nine, 1990s, there was a new generation of uh, young people in the military and in the political establishment in the countries who just were fed up by having these meaningless wars that killed large numbers of people. They brought him down and he just brought people together and asked them to be open. Can you imagine, he said, a solution which would not be a solution in which one of the sides won this territory? Can you imagine a solution that you could live with in which both sides could 
um, in a sense, uh, agree and in a sense, win. They got together. Someone came up with the idea of having this be a national park jointly administered by both countries. They listened, they spent time together, they agreed to it. And that's, that's the way, that, that was the way it was, that, that's what happened. The two countries agreed they're not fighting wars anymore. And it came from a quality of listening for something that, in a way, was ready to, ready to appear. Galtung said that he, um, then when he left, it just took two days, and he went home and he billed them for $43. (laughs) I think $15 for a hotel in Lima and $28 for a bus. (laughs) Uh, Because it's one of his principles as a peacemaker, he refuses to get paid except for his expenses. And so there's a a sense there, and, and can you get that sense of going into the darkness and listening an opening, and something new came out of it in quite a mysterious way. And can we imagine that with some of our own conflicts, some of our own difficulties? Can we listen? Can we have that sense of, of really listening carefully? And it's really at the heart of uh, bringing compassionate uh, presence to the world. It's like Quan Yin, who listens for the sounds of the cries of the world. It's, it's really the work that we do, and it's the work that we can bring to, to the dark. The third quality is the quality of courage because we need to have a lot of courage to really go into the dar- darkness sometimes, to be with the dark, to be with the difficult, to be with the mysterious. I know in that example that I gave of a year when I was dropping structures, it was scary sometimes. Not having structures, wondering what I was doing. Um, it wasn't always very easy to do that. And I think that Going into what's difficult requires courage to have the, the, to have the um, intention to learn from the difficulty, to learn from the d- darkness as difficulty, rather than just to make things like we want them. That requires courage. It requires having a, a large heart that can be with something hard and not just run away and not just want it to be the way we want it. You know, and... There's a way in which the unknown or the darkness just brings us into fear quite often, doesn't it? I mean, I, I once, um, I once was, I, I still am, but I used to be very, very interested in dreams. And in one period, I went through, and I was, for about two years, dreams were almost more important than waking life. Some of you may have had similar experiences for parts of your life. That I was just really into dreams. I was writing down four or five every morning for quite a number of years. And at one point I went back and I took a thousand dreams and I analyzed them together. And one thing I found was that this was a certain, there was a certain period when every time I went, was near dark waters, a monster appeared. Do you know that in your dreams or am I... Bringing back memories. <laughs> and so every time I went into the, uh, the darkness of the dark waters, something monstrous came out of the waters and was not altogether friendly towards me. Wanted to more or less eat me. <laughs> and 
And I was, it was just fascinating to see in my psyche the darkness was connected with that fear, just in, you know, on the symbolic level, which I think is present for us as human beings quite a lot. And what occurred, I found in the sequence of many, actually probably over a year or two, with this particular pattern. Over time, I got to be friendly with the monsters. And at one particular dream, almost like Beauty and the Beast, I kissed the monster and everything changed. And I, I could see that when I went back and looked at the dream sequence. There was like a sequence where it was almost like a progression moving towards that. And I'm sure there were still other fears that had to be worked through, but there was a certain fear that seemed to be uh, worked through in my psyche by the fact of opening more to the darkness. And, and I think that's a, that's a sequence. That would be like dancing with the dark, wouldn't it be? To, to kiss the monster, to kiss the fears. But it takes that kind of courage. It takes a courage to, to be with the dark. It takes um, a courage to be with difficulties. Um, one of the things I learned from a friend of mine named uh, Thich Minh Duc, who's a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, who's a Vietnamese monk who lives in uh, Redwood City and, and has, uh, is the main teacher for the San Jose uh, Vietnamese community, actually the main Vietnamese teacher on the West Coast. And he was telling me that in Vietnam, during the war, they modified the traditional teaching somewhat. The traditional teaching is that the two pillars, or the two, they sometimes said that the two wings of the Dharma are wisdom and compassion. That we have the aspect of the, the clear seeing and then the compassionate open heart. And in Vietnam, they felt the need for a third core quality, and it was courage. So it was wisdom, compassion, and courage that had to be brought together. That really, when I heard that, it really touched me. To, to imagine, can you imagine bringing that in? And it's very much related to the fourth quality I wanted to mention, which is the quality of equanimity, which is... The, which is a deep quality of being able to be with uh, what's difficult, what's dark, and learn to be so familiar with it that one is less and less reactive towards anything difficult, towards anything hard, can be with the difficulties and learn and come to be more and more equanimous. Equanimity is not meaning that you're always calm, but it, it's more non-reactivity. It's a quality of being able to be even, even with the difficulties. It's like sometimes the metaphor of being able to surf the waves, surf the waves of experience. And one needs a great deal of, of equanimity to, to be with the dark, to be with the difficulty. Uh, I wanted to read one passage which came from um, a friend, Joanna Macy. She talks about the importance of equanimity and one meaning of it, and this came from, I'm, as you know, I'm writing a book on the connection between spiritual practice and social change. And one of the wonderful things about this is I do some interviews, and we did an interview with Joanna Macy. And this is what she said, just to me, about equanimity. Because <laughs> she, she, she felt that it's, uh, the, the quality of equanimity she was pointing to is the way that if we really extend our identity and think of ourselves not as me, little Donald, here, 
separate from the world, but rather as connected with the whole world. We can have a very different uh, sense of equanimity with being with whatever happens. She says, if we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origins of life and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story. This helps us to give up trying to do everything in our lifetimes, to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen, the peerless defender of the rainforest, the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us, that we're part of the story. That's going to be, that's in so far, it has to get past the editor, but I think it will. (laughs) So so there's that sense of of, uh, what helps us to go into the dark is cultivating that sense of equanimity. It's in a way, and Joanna's pointing to one way to do that, which is to have this sense of being part of this large, large web. And so it's very hard to be knocked around too much if we're part of this larger life, because it's, there, there is something bigger, something wider. And the last quality is the quality of faith, which is, again, these are really interrelated qualities. It's some sense of, that comes with experience partly, but it's a sense of having faith. Maybe it's a faith in something larger, but a faith that lets us be with the unknown and rest in something larger or rest in rest in a confidence about uh, our own nature, about life, about something that's deep in us. Like the development of faith, faith is deepened by, by knowledge. So I think every time that we go into the dark, faith develops. Every time we work with a difficulty and open to it and listen to it, we develop faith the way that someone like Galtung could have faith to go into this seemingly stuck situation because he had gone into a lot of stuck situations in the past. And so there's a way in which faith isn't just a kind of blind faith, but it's a, it's a faith that gets deepened the more we explore, the more we work with difficulties. And again, the, one of the glories of our meditation practice is that we can learn to go into difficulties and hang out with them for sustained times. And if you've hung out with fear in, a, in your own practice or in a retreat for a week, it's never the same again. If you've spent time with anger in, in a sustained way, which is what this practice opens us to, it's never the same. If we've spent time with grief or sadness in a sustained way, it's never the same. And that brings a certain faith. There's really a faith that there's something deeper than the fear, deeper than the sadness, deeper than the difficulty, that there's something 
deeper, wider, using Geronimacy's sense. And that we can have a sense that going into the dark is just one of the cycles, that going into the dark is also related to going into the light. And in fact, as we go into the dark, the light opens up. That, that actually they're very much related. I think that's ultimately what we learn from, the, from, from going into the dark. It's really about this uh, interpenetration of light and dark. And the darkness isn't so dark, and the light isn't so light. And rather they're more very much um, friends, we might say. So let me stop there. Thank you. So I'd be pleased to hear either a comment or a question or particularly something about your own uh, going into the dark practice of the last week, if if you've done that. Either something you found or a question that came up. Or anything stimulated by by, um, the talk as well. I know of the known. But what we're saying is that there's this uh, threshold of naming really clearly, call it the storylines, what I call the sort of the catastrophic images or catastrophic stories. It's naming, uh, it's sort of naming the the distressing, worrying thoughts, or the you know it might be the really uh, cluttery thoughts, but just naming that which keeps us somewhat stuck and maybe even suffering. And naming those thoughts, being on the lookout for, you know, when there's a, uh, we go into darkness or there's difficulty, being on the lookout for the thoughts which are telling us how it is and how bad things are. Mm. That's where the mindfulness practice comes in, but that's almost, almost the single most important starting point for all of this, isn't it? It's in our practice and in our daily lives to start identifying those, those uh, thoughts, identifying those stories and seeing where each of them are. I mean, we could almost, might almost be useful right now to ask, what are the stories which lock you into difficulty? You know, or what's the one story which you tell yourself which um, kind of does the counterpart of what you were talking about, which keeps you in a difficult place? You might just take, a, take 30 seconds now. Thank you. Um, any time for one more, and then we'll have to close. Yeah. This might sound like a come to see from another perspective, whatever whatever that takes. Yes. A retreat, travel, um, being with really different kinds of friends, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. I mean, art can do that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, movies sometimes. Yeah, go into someone else's world, see it, see things. The retreats are beautiful, so so thank you. Mm. Well, let's just take a moment. I, I, had, I was trying to sense whether to read a poem just to finish. Let's see what I have. Um, 
story time. <laughs> okay, this is from this is from Rilke. Okay, this is uh, a poem about how we are in the dark and we come out of the dark, and it's sometimes scary, but we we keep moving. God speaks to each of us as he or she makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. So let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. What's the name of that? Is that from the Book of Hours? Yeah, it's from Rilke's Book of Hours, Love Poems to God. It might be in the bookstore. (laughs) Not reduced price. (laughs) (laughs) Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy, translators. So Joanna's a multifaceted person. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or so. So let be present what was helpful, what resonated from the morning. From the exploration of going into the dark, the different qualities of the darkness, ignorance, fertility, Difficulty, mysterious quality, and some of the qualities we can uh, cultivate to help us be with the dark. Letting go of the known, openness, courage, equanimity, and faith, among others. And see if there's one, maybe two, understandings or ideas or or intentions that come out of the morning that can help us in this um, period in which we're still going into the dark. What intentions will you set for yourself? We end at this time by remembering that we practice for ourselves very much, but also for others. 
And may we share the fruits of our practice, of our lives, of this time together with all beings with whom we're in contact. And further, may we share the benefits of this time with all beings for their healing, transformation, and awakening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.